Today's episode of InVibe Life Conversations podcast is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. It's everything that you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So to me, it's risk and benefit. And and to me, probably the risk from the vaccine itself is extremely low, but I can't tell you it's zero. You know, there's obviously there's these potential things that happen to any vaccine, Um, but, but very unlikely, probably more likely if you get COVID that you have one of those somewhat severe side effects. And so to me, it's that risk benefit ratio of I'd err on probably the benefit of the benefit of a vaccine to me for most people is going to be much better than the risk of having of getting COVID. Welcome to InVibe Live Conversations with Amy Parker and Cheryl Dunn. By tuning in, you are joining a community that will inspire you to increase balance, wellness, and joy in your life. We'll offer expert information and insightful conversations to help us on our journey to live more in vibe. For more information and articles, remember to also check out our website at invibelife.com. That's E-N-V-I-B-E-L-I-F-E.com. We're grateful that you're here. Hello, welcome to the InVibe Life Conversations podcast with Amy Parker and Cheryl Dunn. We have a return guest today we're really excited about, Dr. Jeff Yorio with Texas Oncology. Dr. Yorio joined us a few months ago because he has kind of gained a following with your Facebook post and other information, Dr. Yorio, in Austin since the beginning of the COVID epidemic for tracking the epidemic, tracking the statistics, giving really detailed and easy to understand reports about that, um, especially in the Austin community, but really even in Texas and the greater community beyond. So thank you, Dr. Yorio, for joining us for another installment of our um, COVID information series we're starting here. Hopefully they won't last too much longer, right? We're, we're so glad to have you here. Well, thanks for having me for having me back. <laughs> so can you give us just a little update of where we're a couple weeks past spring break. Um, so can you give our audience a little bit of update of where COVID stands in our community in Austin and, and in the U S yeah. and worldwide? Yeah, sure. You know, um, I guess in, in Austin itself, I think things have been fairly steady as far as, um, as far as, new cases of COVID-19 and as far as hospitalizations, you know, we've seen kind of a, um, I'd say we saw a a pretty good substantial decrease, you know, from kind of the peaks in January and beginning of February, um, and then kind of dropped to, to where we're, we're at now kind of in March and over the last sort of month, it's been fairly steady. Maybe there's a really, a very slight uptick in cases over the last one to two weeks, but not a, not a dramatic one but still averaging kind of on the on the order of probably 100 to 120 cases a day in the Austin area. Um, and then hospitalizations kind of similarly, we've we've seen this kind of drop in 
in cases, you know, since our peaks kind of towards the end of January and February. And now it's kind of plateaued out, you know, and, and on average, I think there's about 100 and 130 to 140, you know, people in the hospital with COVID-19 on any given day. Um, and that seems to have kind of mostly plateaued over this last month. So I feel like we're in this kind of plateau region and, and um, haven't necessarily seen a big uptick over the last few weeks by any means. So, so that's good. Um, similarly, it just feels in different, you know, it, it feels different out there right now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you're, you're seeing uh, people being more, you know, more active, I guess, you know, more activity going on and people, um, but, but yeah, less of those big cases, it seems like, and, and, you know, less of what we were seeing certainly in January and February and, and kind of throughout the winter, uh, which is good. You know, I think it's different uh, in, in Texas, probably similar. Maybe there's been a little bit of slight uptick throughout Texas in these last few weeks, but not a major spike, at least at this point. Um, and so, again, kind of seems like we've hit more of that plateau region in Texas. Uh, the U.S., I think a little different. You're seeing maybe a little more of an uptick in cases. Um, and, and I think there's some of these different regions where where you're just seeing more of an increase or more of a spike. Um, whether that's due, you know, some people probably some of that's due to some of the the newer variants. I think the UK variant that's that seems to be a little more virulent um, probably is getting more spread more throughout the US. And so I think in some of the regions where that's maybe hitting, maybe that's why you're seeing some of that uptick in those regions. Um, but certainly not not the massive peaks we were seeing or, or massive amount of cases we were seeing in the winter. So so that's that's good. Hopefully it continues to last and, and maybe evidence that things like vaccinations are starting to, to help to some extent. So I think that is the big question is the vaccines and um, are we getting enough of them out? Are enough people signing up to do it? And um, is that part of the reason why we have less cases? Yeah, I, I think it's probably contributing. You know, it's always uh, as we, you know, we're starting to see more and more people get vaccinated and have their vaccines, you know, out there in the population. Um, I think we're up to, you know, 25 to 30 percent of people probably in the Austin area or Texas have actually had their first at least one vaccine and and maybe around getting closer to 20 percent that have been fully vaccinated. So that's that's good to see. So I think that certainly is starting to to probably make a dent into that and hopefully makes a dent into the hospitalization. Um, one thing I'd, I'd like to point out um, in, in one group, which is the people in these long-term healthcare facilities, you know, um, so kind of the, the ner big nursing facilities, you know, inpatient rehab centers, things like that, where there was a big push to get vaccines to those populations, um, you know, early on. Um, so, so the presumption is a really large amount of those those people in those residents are have been vaccinated, you know, in January and February, and you've seen cases just plummet in those places. You've you've seen very few cases in those facilities. So that shows in these these areas where, gosh, you know, maybe eighty percent of those folks are actually vaccinated, or eighty to ninety percent. Um, there's very few cases happening. So that's that's exciting because that was a really high risk population, and that was responsible for a higher amount of deaths and things like that in those those type of groups. So so it shows you how vaccines are probably working really well when you get them to enough people because um, there's very low levels of, of 
you know, cases happening now in those facilities. So that's good. Um, and then, um, you know, hopefully, again, we get more and more of the, the general population now vaccinated and you start to see continue control of cases and decline in hospitalizations and, and ultimately deaths and long term problems. Well, and this is really one of the things we wanted to speak to you about today most, because in Texas now, everyone 16 and over can receive the vaccine. I happen to be part of the um, group that's slightly, only slightly over 50. So I was able to start receiving the vaccine when it went to 50 and above, I guess, in the middle of March. And, you know, a couple things happened with that one. It's all my friends are talking about. And then now that our teenage children can receive it or college age children, it's really all anyone's talking about. And one thing I found when I was really trying to research and find out more about the vaccine to see, do I really want to do this? Do I not want to do this? I don't know much about it. It's not that easy to find information about it. You kind of have the standard, I'm going to say party line, whoever that's coming from, I have no idea, but, and it's just repeated over and over and over in anything you look at. So I just kind of had to let all of that go to the wayside and kind of go with my gut a little bit. And I did choose to receive the vaccine. I've had one dose of the Moderna, but I'd really like you to talk about the, like the three different vaccines and how they're different. Like what is messenger RNA? And is that, I mean, it's something that creeps people out. It's like, oh my goodness, what are they doing to my RNA or DNA here? So would you just tell us a little about the vaccines in general? Sure. So, um, so, you know, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are, are using messenger RNA technology, um, which is new for vaccines. It's not something that prior vaccines had incorporated. It, it is something that's been studied, you know, a lot over the last 10 to 20 years. Um, and so that's why it was, they were able to kind of use that technology for this so quickly um, because they've been really studying it for, for vaccinating for different viruses. And also, you know, in the, the cancer world, we use it or we've been studying it a lot and how, you know, maybe you can use those types of vaccinations to fight cancers. Um, so that's always been a, a potential point of, of treatment or, or things we've looked at. Um, but messenger RNA, if you go, go back to cell biology, um, you know, you've got your cell uh, and then you've got the nucleus of the cell and, and the nucleus of the cell is where our DNA is. And that's the, that's the backbone of any cell and, and kind of the, the boss of the cell, right? That's what's telling the cells to, to do certain things. That's our, that's our foundation of the cell. And so what happens in a nucleus is the DNA will get turned into, it'll produce mRNA, little messenger RNAs that then leave the nucleus and go out into the cytoplasm, which is the, the kind of outer part of the cell. And then messenger RNA then is, is taken and then it's turned into protein. And then proteins are actually what go and do different functions in our in cells or in the body or, or all throughout. And so, so that's kind of how it works. So DNA often turn, will transcribe messenger RNA, just kind of like the, the communication, the little letter that gets sent out. And then somebody read the outside in the cytoplasm, it gets read and then protein gets made. And that's what actually turns into something. So if you think about the, the DNA is maybe like the architect, um, the messenger RNA is maybe like the architectural plans and then the, you know, the construction worker has to like read the plans and actually do the, 
do the job right um, and build something. Um, so, so something along those lines. And so these vaccines, what happens? Um, they're using mRNA technology, so they're using their mRNA, you know, coded technology that's surrounded in this little fat capsule, basically that that gets injected. That's necessary because mRNA is kind of actually very weak; it gets degraded really fast. So, so if you just stuck mRNA out there, it just it would just get destroyed. So it has to have this protective capsule. Um, so it gets in this protective capsule. The protective capsule will go inside of cells and it goes inside of these muscle cells nearby um, and then the the fat capsule breaks apart and then you've got this messenger rna that then can get encoded into protein and then that protein goes to the surface of the cell and then the immune system will recognize that protein and see hey that protein shouldn't be here let's formulate a attack against it and um and then that's what creates this immune response basically that messenger RNA that goes into that cell gets gets degraded very fast. As soon as it gets transcribed into protein, it, it's going to get destroyed. So, so I, I've said it's kind of like Mission Impossible, where you get that little <laughs> you're going to read this message, and in six seconds, it's going to get destroyed. You remember that whole? Uh, the, I don't know, right. remember that. And yeah. so that's kind of what happens. It it goes in, delivers the message, and then the message gets destroyed. So it disappears. So it's not um, in any way hanging around for a long time. Um, and then messenger RNA has no way to get into the nucleus. So it has no way to affect the DNA of cells, okay. which is, you know, which is what people worry about, right? Oh, is it affecting my DNA in some way? Right. And so it actually has no way to, to get transcribed or to do, to, to get into the DNA. So, it, um, the DNA is fully protected. It's in this, you know, uh, very high Fort Knox of the, uh, of the cells. So it can't get in there. Um, so anyway, that's kind of how you think about it. So it's a it's a pretty neat way that to deliver these type of of um, of deals, you know, so that the immune system can respond to it. So Johnson and Johnson is not using that. What are they using? C- correct. So Johnson and Johnson's using um, basically a, an adenovirus um, as kind of a vector, um, and so they're using um, kind of similar in a way where they're using in, inside the the adenovirus, the adenovirus itself, which is a dead, dead virus, a dead adenovirus. Um, but basically it's sending those in and on the, on the surface of those adenovirus cells, that's what's, it's basically encoding these proteins that the immune system can respond to kind of similar, like it's, it's encoding these proteins that, um, that are going to be seen as foreign and they're the spike proteins of, of COVID. Um, and so it allows the immune system to recognize those but it's using this adenovirus as the vector instead of uh, messenger RNA going into your, your own muscle cells, basically. So, so is so, that similar to the flu vaccine? A little bit. I mean, kind of similar to some other classic vaccines. They don't, they don't all use the adenovirus but as a vector, but, but kind of a similar, more similar to traditional vaccines, I'd say. So we've heard that the Pfizer and Moderna are more effective or their efficacy is in the 90% where the Johnson and Johnson's in the 70 percentage rates. Is that because of the delivery type or just the studies? You know, that have done? Yeah. Hard to say. I mean, I think, uh, you know, one, the, they're, it's sort of apples to oranges in a way because the Johnson and Johnson, they only did one shot versus two shots. Um, if you follow the Johnson and Johnson really far out, you know, 60 days later, let's say, 
it looks like the efficacy is probably starts to approach higher, like 90% or something like that. And so, so maybe there's something to, had they done two shots of Johnson and Johnson, you may have gotten to that same type of number, you know, that's, that's kind of hard to say. Um, and then they're looking at just actual cases of COVID. Um, all three have been really effective at preventing serious illness from COVID. Mm -hmm. so to me, that's, that's probably the bottom line is, you know, I don't think we ever expect vaccinations to be 100% effective in preventing COVID at all. But if you can turn COVID, which is a more serious illness for some people, into a much more mild illness, then you've kind of done your job. What you want, you know, if it's if it's gone from a very serious illness that you end up in the hospital to a mild cold that lasts two days, then then you you know then that's that's also doing its job, right? So you still get the you still may get infected and you still may get a little sick from it, but to to prevent those serious illnesses, then I think that's really important to think about. So I think all three of them do a good job of that. Maybe Moderna and Pfizer did a slightly better job, at least in the initial mm -hmm. kind of period when they studied of um, preventing people from getting a symptomatic infection at all. But. So speaking of conversations with our friends, yes, there's the conversation about the vaccine, but there's also the conversation of those that are reluctant to go get it mm -hmm. because of how quickly it was put out on the market, um, the lack of research behind it. Um, you know, there's many reasons. Did the recall on the Johnson and Johnson this week, the stories of, you know, paralysis and dying and different things of that from the vaccine, you know, we're hearing all of those stories as well. So what would you say to that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's always, um, I think by and large, they're bit, they've been very safe you know, as far as a, as, as far as in the short term and probably, you know, just the way vaccines work, unlikely that they're going to cause long, long-term problems. Um, so, so probably what you're seeing in the short term, you know, are going to be the bigger side effects. So I think those were really well studied, you know, all of these were used 30 to 40,000 people on these clinical trials. I mean, that's, um, you know, I think for, for oncology drugs, which I'm involved with, we'll use 300 people on a clinical trial to make huge decisions, right? Um, and and decide that this drug is, you know, effective or things like that. And of course, they're two very different things. I'm dealing with a much sicker population and all that type of stuff, but um, as opposed to potentially a healthy population that's getting a vaccine, and that's why you need more thousands of more people to to decide things. But um, but still, just to give you an example, that's that's a lot of people on clinical trials when you start to get into 30 to 40,000 people. You know, probably most of the medicines that that people take, whether it's, you know, blood pressure medicines or statins or things like that, um, probably, you know, used several thousands of people. But, you know, most of them may not approach 30 to 40,000 people, even on clinical trials when they do those type of things. So so it's a lot of pe people that are involved with those trials, which is which is sort of reassuring to me because um, it gives you a lot of data points about maybe what the safety might be like. Um, but that said, there's still, you're still injecting or you're getting uh, something that's, you know, foreign to your system. And anytime we inject medicine or take medicine, there's always some potential risk. Anytime we're going to give medicine to millions and millions of people, 
there's probably something that will happen to some people as a result, right? Because it's just, it's just what happened. happens. If I, um, if I give an antibiotic to millions and millions of people, there will be people who die from that antibiotic that happens, you know? Um, and so um, if I give baby aspirin to millions and millions of people or if millions and millions of people take, you know, Tylenol or ibuprofen, there's people that have really, really severe side effects from those drugs as well. And so what you're seeing is as millions of people start to take these vaccines, you probably start to pick up on these rare, extremely rare events, but, but still plausible and still things that happen. Um, so I think that's, to me, it's always about risk, risk and benefit. Right. And so, um, so certainly COVID is a, is an awful illness that can cause big problems. Um, you know, in the high risk elderly population, very high, high amounts of deaths, right? We've seen that happen as over half a million people and counting have died from this disease in the United States over the last year. Um, it's caught COVID's caused a lot of other big long-term problems, people who are hospitalized, people who weren't hospitalized, but still have these kind of long-term COVID problems, months to not smell or months to cause other issues. Um, as a, you know, we've seen many people get blood clots as a result of COVID-19 infections, even very healthy 22 year olds, you know, I've seen get severe blood clots as a, as a result of COVID-19, the infection itself. So all those things are happening as a result of the infection. So is that why, I mean, we, we kind of made a brief mention of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine was suspended, I think two days ago when we're recording this podcast and, you know, we do intend to air it within a couple days of recording it. So hopefully the people will be getting this information in pretty real time, but the concern is a certain demographic. I think women between about 18 and 50, I read getting blood clots. Is it because that's an effect of COVID? in general, or is it something completely different with the vaccine or the administration of the vaccine itself? And, and the reality is I don't quite know the answer to that okay. question at this point. Right. Um, Which is why it was suspended. Right. Yeah. As they're trying to figure out. And I think that's, you know, I think they're just being safe. They've, I think they've, the press release said there's six cases of this um, that, have, that they have seen with Johnson and Johnson that's out of 7 million vaccines given. So, um, so you're talking about, at this point, less than one in a million chance of this happening. Um, but they're seeing those cases and they're, and they're a severe blood clot that, that people are seeing um, that they think is as a result of the, of that vaccine. Um, as I said, we've actually, there's been, you know, I don't know how many, but several cases um, published out there about COVID-19 causing a very similar vaccine, similar blood clot problem. Um, and so, um, so it's, so probably mechanistically, I think I'd like to think there's probably something there that the vaccine and maybe the immune response to it is causing clots, um, similar to how the immune response to COVID itself is probably stimulating these type of clots to happen. And so I think there's probably some similarity there because you're, it's maybe how your immune system's responding to, to it. Um, but I don't know that for sure. We'll have to learn more information. Um, you know, you think about birth control pills in women and, uh, the chance of having a blood clot is one in a hundred with the birth control pills. So, um, so one in a hundred, one percent chance versus one in a million, which is 0.00, you know, 1% of a chance. So, um, so anyway, 
that's that's something to think about. Um, but the type of clot they've seen was was a very severe type of clot, so I think that's why they wanted to say, "Hey, let's take a pause and let's let's learn about this um, and and see what we can find out and see if we agree with continuing to go forward with the vaccine itself." And they saw, I think they're seeing that's why AstraZeneca, which is not approved here in the U.S. yet, but they were seeing blood clots with it as well. So, so. Speaking about side effects, just an interesting question. I was one of the people, I feel like among people I know, I know people who just were blindly going to get the vaccine the first minute they could possibly get it. And I know people who are really um, scared or reluctant to get it and are really just not doing it. I was the rare somewhere in the middle person (laughs) I felt like, where it's like, I'm just not quite sure, but I, you know, also don't want to get sick. I have some underlying health conditions, so, yeah, things like that. Um, in trying to find information, like I said, first of all, it was hard to find. But one of the things I came across that I thought was really interesting is that the um, more, I guess, the stronger your immune system, the more of a response you might have to the vaccine Um, And so I read something, and this was interesting to me because I have three young sons, that the younger people, because their immune system is so strong, may actually see more of a response even to the first dose than people in older demographics. What do you mean by more of a response? Well, so like my in-laws, for example, in their 70s, zero response except a sore arm to either vaccine. Zero side effects. Side effects. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Okay. (laughs) So thank you for correcting me. Yeah. Where, you know, like I am just someone who's very sensitive to things. And even after the first dose had a couple days where I didn't feel awesome, super tired, nausea, headache. And then I woke up on about the third day, like, okay, everything's great. (laughs) Like back to normal. And my um, 20 year old and 16 year old who one got the Johnson and Johnson and one got, of course, the Pfizer, he's 16, had very similar to what I did for about 24 to 48 hours, just low level headache and nausea um, feeling off. And it was just it was so odd to me because I thought, oh, well, the young guys are just they're just going to get it and move on with life. Like we've heard so many stories of teenagers getting COVID and didn't even know they had it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, you know, um, certainly probably our immune system stronger the younger we are. So that's helpful. Um, you know, I, hard, hard to say, I guess, because of course you're seeing varying side effects throughout all the age groups and, right. and things like that and, and just um, people. But certainly I think maybe some people are going to be more sensitive to it. Maybe they have much more of this kind of immune response to it initially um, that, that causes the fevers and the, you know, just kind of like a, an achiness and a, and a lethargy, lethargy type of thing. Um, and so I think that's certainly there and and you're seeing that in a good percentage of folks and and probably has something to do with just how their immune system's reacting to it. And I think I just thought it was important to mention, first of all, I thought it was really interesting. And second of all, so that you don't get overly scared if you get that reaction after one dose or now if you've had a Johnson and John, not that they're being given right now. Like I was glad I knew that before my two sons got it, or I might've been more alarmed by them at that age having that response. Definitely. And I think that's just something that you have to think about. Oh, these type of responses are probably going to be pretty expected with these, with the vaccines and, and they're, you know, most of them are going to be pretty self-limiting, you know, like your, like your experience, two days didn't feel too great. And then 
all of a sudden it was gone and, and not, you know, I feel much better. So, yeah. It's interesting. I, I'll fess up. I'm super reluctant to get it, but I am also one of those people that was 28 years old on birth control that had a TIA. Right. Yeah. So, um, and I haven't been on any hormones since then, obviously, but you know, so there is this piece of me that's, and I don't take any medication. You know, I live a very healthy lifestyle. I know I'm not immune to things, but there's a piece of me that has this belief that, um, why go put a foreign substance in my body when I'm really doing great? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, to me, it's risk and benefit, right? And you start weighing, and that's what I always think about. And I always counsel people on with any medicine is that anything you introduce in your body medicine wise is always going to be a risk and benefit ratio, right? Of what makes sense for you may not always make sense for somebody else, but, but kind of weighing those pros and cons of things. And, and so to me, it's always been the risk with COVID is um, it's a, it's a bad virus. Majority of people get through it probably just fine. Right. As you, you've all seen kids have been gotten through it and, you know, friends have probably gotten through it. Well, and my parents got through it fine. Parents got through it fine. And so it's just risk and benefit, you know, to me of, of things. Now there's a lot of big complications that can happen with COVID. Um, obviously that we've seen, you know, from severe hospitalizations to blood clots to chronic issues. And the problem is we haven't all, you know, you can predict some of those things, you know, I think, you know, older age, multiple comorbidities, obesity are, are huge risk factors for COVID. Um, but as I said, you see, you do see some of these other things like, like TIAs and stroke-like events with COVID itself or um, blood clot, even in young, healthy, you know, people. Um, and so, so to me, it's risk and benefit. And, and to me, probably the risk from the vaccine itself is extremely low, but I can't tell you it's zero. You know, there's obviously there's these potential things that happen and to any vaccine. Um, but, but very unlikely, probably more likely if you get COVID that you have one of those somewhat severe side effects. And so to me, it's that risk benefit ratio of I'd err on probably the benefit of the benefit of a vaccine to me for most people is going to be much better than the risk of having, of getting COVID. Um, although it changes, you know, as I said, with some different people, their risk with COVID starts to get lower and lower, you know, and so then you weigh that risk factor with the vaccine. Still, if you're going pound for pound between the two issues, I'd say that the illness is probably still has that potential to do worse things than the vaccine would. But I can't tell you that the vaccine's 100% not going to cause any problems because it still has that little, little tiny chance that it. And it's so new. You know, I just feel like as just like with COVID, where we have learned so much as it's gone on, like we're learning that there's more and more side effects from it, even after you're past the initial piece. Um, we're learning that there's long-term effects from COVID and we've only been around it for a little over a year now. Wouldn't you say it's very valid that as the longer the vaccine's around, we might see that there's more and more side effects from it as well. And potentially so, you never know. You know, I think, as I said, with most vaccines, probably you see um, that initial kind of, you know, problems are usually in that first couple of weeks afterwards if, if there's any major major things and and even in the any of the things they've picked up on have, have all seemed to be 
more in the, you know, um, last, the few weeks following um, getting the vaccine itself. So, you know, as I said, to me, it's risk and benefit. To me, it's um, COVID's caused such problems and wreaked such havoc on our society and on so many people. Um, so to me, the risk with the vaccine is extremely, extremely low. Um, but I can't say it's zero. It's there's still, you know, there's always some risk involved. Um, it's probably riskier to go drive to the vaccine, to go get the vaccine right? than it is to get the vaccine, right? Because your chance of getting into some huge car accident is probably much higher than right. actually any bad, bad effect from the vaccine. Well, I have I have driven with Cheryl and I can say that's totally <laughs> true. <laughs> She's right. I am not a good driver. I'll yeah. so, <laughs> I mean, I um, think I'm a great driver, but everybody else in the car gets a little scared. <laughs> um, so yeah, so there's that. So certainly that. Um, and as I said, I think to me, even even for young people, the risk with COVID itself, even though very low of having major complications, still probably that risk is much higher than any risk of major complications. I have heard some stories, you know, like Cheryl's right. The longer we go, the more personal anecdotes. And, you know, they're all maybe not personally known, but we're a really good friend's neighbor or so, you know, they're within that degree of separation enough to make you sort of uh, catch your breath a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And so I think the reality is, is that no, you know, I think it's, it's a really hard virus. And to me, for society to move forward, um, in a proper way. And some of it, so to me, some of it's a society thing of sorts too, of like, and I think that's very valid. Mm-hmm. We do it, need to move forward. Mm-hmm. And, and so for society to really move forward, to me, we, we have to, the vaccines are really our way forward, you know, to get, get, get where, to a better place. Where do you think we stand on herd immunity right now? Uh, I mean, I think we're still a ways away from it. You know, I mean, true herd immunity is probably, I guess it's how you define it. But, um, you know, if you're looking at true herd immunity, you probably need, you know, 85% or 90% of people to ultimately get vaccinated or maybe have had the disease. Um, and, um, And so we're probably still quite a ways from that. You know, if you're thinking maybe we're in the 25 to 30% of people have been vaccinated who knows how many people have truly had the virus, um, but maybe let's say it's 25% or 30% as well, um, which, you know, I've seen numbers kind of approximating that. Um, and so may, you know, maybe 45 to 50% of people um, like in Texas, let's say have either been vaccinated or had the virus. There's thoughts that if you've had the virus, your immunity is going to wane a little bit with time. So you'll be still susceptible to get it again. I have no idea how long the vaccine immunity is going to last. Nobody does. And so that's, um, that's something we're still learning. Um, and so if, so even if we're at 50%, we're still probably away from hurt true herd immunity. Now being at 50%, it probably starts to slow the, the chances that the virus spreads, but, but not eliminate it entirely. Right. Or, or not get it to really, really low numbers. So um, so an example would be like measles, you know, MMR vaccines, right? Measles, mumps, rubella vaccines. Um, there was a time when you saw very few measles cases in the U.S., you know, for a period of time. But as the vaccine, as people become more hesitant about vaccines, you start to see more cases of measles pop up, um, especially in different communities, right? And so as those communities drop below let's say 90% or 85% immunity with their vaccines, you started to see measles 
reappear in higher amounts of cases. And so, so that just shows you kind of there's that herd immunity line maybe of, of you know, how many cases are really going to be out there. And, and you probably have to get somewhere in that 85 to 90% range to really mostly eradicate the disease or make it very low. So if you've had COVID and you have the antibodies, does that count towards the herd immunity? And if you have the antibodies, do you really need to get the vaccine? Good question. I think I think our thoughts are, or the thoughts I've seen out there are, are that, you know, probably still effective to get the vaccine. Um, I typically, you know, that first three months after your infection, we're, we're not really seeing reinfections that early on, but we're starting, we are starting to see some reinfections if you got, you know, three months and beyond from your COVID infection. And so the thought is probably that, that it wanes a little bit with time. Um, and, and that probably they will need the vaccine, otherwise they're gonna be still susceptible to get it again. And so, so it just all depends, you know, if our ultimate goal is to try to really get this virus to really low, low numbers, then I think you've gotta get, you know, the majority, that 80, 90% of people have to get vaccinated. Otherwise you'll continue to see it circulate. Wow. Do you think, can you estimate when you think here in Austin or here in Texas, you think we'll be at that? I don't know if we'll ever get there because I think there's, uh, there's, you know, they, they say what 30 to 35, 30 to 40 percent of people are, are, you know, not going to get the vaccine. So, so then you're, then you may never actually reach that. You may never actually reach full herd immunity. So you'll still, you'll still get outbreaks that will start happening. At much like, as I said, much like what you see with measles when it drops below that kind of threshold. Fascinating. So when I was making my choice, like I said, I really was looking at both sides of it and weighing it. It really, I mean, I just really felt like I was kind of in a lose-lose and it just kind of re-impressed upon me. This is just a really bad situation we're in the middle of and there aren't great answers to it. And I just have to accept the situation I'm in. And I think, yeah, sort of the, my desire for things to get back to normal and for everyone else to get to get back to normal, along with having underlying health conditions or what pushed me in the direction of moving forward and getting the vaccine. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree entirely. It's, you know, yes, in a perfect world, you wouldn't have to introduce any of this, you know, or do any of this. Um, but to me, in order to move to be healthy and move society forward. I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's something that's going to ultimately, it's to me the best way forward, you know, is, yeah. to, is to get most of, as many people vaccinated as possible. Um, and as I said, I think you look at, you know, you look at other diseases like polio or something like that, where we're, we're really required, you know, 80 to 90% of the population getting vaccinated to, to drop it to where we, you know, polio, we don't talk about polio anymore, right? So, um, but it was a really awful disease. And I don't know if you've ever met anybody who had polio, but it's it was a devastating, awful disease um, to have. And, and what's different today versus back then is, you know, people didn't even question going to get vaccinated for polio. There was, people ran out their doors to go get that vaccine, right? Um, because they saw their, their friends and they saw their family members get hit with this disease. Um, society's changed a lot in how we view things, I guess, but, um, and, and probably most of us have seen friends or family members be very affected because of COVID. 
um, and die because of COVID and, and other things. And um, but for some reason, we don't have that same desire to to go get vaccinated. <laughs> there's there's more questions out there, I guess. But um, but I, that's why I would impress upon people. I think it's you know good to move forward with with doing them. I truly believe that it, it is the uh, path to moving forward, but it is interesting. Like I'll have one patient, one hour who says I have an autoimmune disease. So yes, I am going to get this vaccine ASAP because I have these underlying conditions. The very next hour, I'll have a client say, I have an autoimmune disease. There's no way I'm going to go do this because yeah. I already have an immune problem. Yeah. You know, so it's just so people are, they're all over the board with it and they might have, and you know, what's going on in their body might be the same, but the story around it is different for them. So yeah. it's just fascinating, you know? Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's interesting how people will take the say, you know, how they'll interpret information for themselves and, and think about it. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get it. It's, you know, as you, it's new and it's something we don't always, you know, you haven't had the luxury of all this time to think about or know about. And, um, but so was this pandemic, right? We had a, we had to deal with it on the fly and, and, um, and it's been devastating, you know, it's been a devastating illness for, for the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you've been super helpful. This has been a great conversation. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Informative, you know, giving people some answers and as much as we all can right now, I feel like all of our hands are tied mm-hmm. with the information, you know, because just as time goes on, we'll all know more. Yes. Right? Correct. Correct. So, yeah. um, I think this is great. And I uh-huh. think that, uh, it's important for people to get out and talk to people like you, because, you know, as we found all of our friends are talking, but you're really out there dealing with it, dealing with the vaccines, dealing with the people and seeing what's going on. So thank yeah. you for yeah. coming we on. appreciate um, everything you've been doing for the Austin community and for joining us to share some of that mm-hmm. insight. I think one thing, Amy, and I want to make sure that is said is that you work at Texas Oncology and you have noticed that there have been an influx of cancer patients because yes. people were not getting screened over COVID. And so we want people to just get back out there and do their screenings. And do you have a message for yeah, our definitely, audience? Definitely. Yeah. You know, I think, um, unfortunately we saw a, a drastic decline in cancer incidents last year from really from March to June or July, there was a really big decrease in the diagnoses of cancer. Um, and that's, that's directly related to, there wasn't as much people getting screened because they weren't, they were worried about going to the doctor. Um, more hesitancy just to go to the doctor with symptoms, you know, and I, I think that was going on. And so what we're seeing, what we are seeing now is probably the flip side of that. We're, we're probably seeing, and I don't have all the data yet, but just, just, you know, my own gestalt is that we're starting to see a higher incidence of cancer recently. Um, start to happen. Um, and that's, that's just, it's because the diagnoses hadn't been caught. Right. So it's not, right. not that cancer incidence is really going up. It's just they, last year it was down this year, it's going to be up because we're making up for it. Right. So, right. So, so go get, go, yeah, go get your regular, yeah. uh, whatever you need to do to feel comfortable to take care of yourself in every other way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, any practitioner I've been to or, you know, doctors, I've, everyone is being completely, you know, COVID safe with masking and cleaning. And it, it, so if you are not getting out there because of that, it's safe, right? Wouldn't you say that going to the doctor? I think, I think doctor's office has done a really nice job of, of, you know, being safe and preventing things. And so, um, so yeah, please. And I can say, I think my dentist is more so than anyone else. So (laughs) Yeah. All of your screenings, there. make yes. sure you keep up with all of your appointments. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, thank you again. And it's been such a great pleasure, you know. So. And I mean, I'll say we'll look forward to seeing you next time. It'd be nice if we didn't have to, because there wouldn't need to be another update. But I okay. have a feeling we we will have another occasion to circle back and hopefully maybe have some great news to share. Oh, hopefully so. Hopefully so. So, all right. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to Invibe Live Conversations. For more information and to join our community, be sure to check out our website at invibelive.com. We look forward to sharing with you.